Is it fair to say Jay-Z is living the Frank Sinatra template? No. Well, he doesn't have a token white person running around with him like he did Sammy <laughs> Davis Jr. He needs his white Sammy right? Davis Jr. He needs Jr. a white Sammy Davis Jr. to make it happen. See? Hold up. Right. He does have a token white person running around with yeah. Because that's to me what Sammy Davis was essentially in, this whole, in, in the whole Rat Pack thing is they, they got one. <laughs> you got to have one token. At a time when you didn't really need one, did you? But it's good to have one. <laughs> it's what makes you cool. <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. You got that one black friend. <laughs> you know that? Friends are hard to find, so be careful. You can try to enter the mind and prepare you. If some ain't that bad, but one might backstab to get different tips on what one might have. Welcome to the B side. The music snaps. This is the Music Snobs Podcast. My name is Arthur, your lead voice, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Scoop, Isaac, and Jahan. Is it by my co-host or with my co-hosts? We aren't really your co-hosts, though, man. We're more like your background singers, because yeah. it's all about you, bro. You my soul Quarian? <laughs> we are soul Quarians. <laughs> we are the heartbeats. <laughs> it's all about you, Eddie Kane. <laughs> Francis Albert Sinatra. Emphasis on the Francis. Emphasis on Frank. Right. We're not talking about House of Cards. We're talking about Frank Sinatra, the American singer, actor, producer, uh, one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. He is one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. Probably the definition of an iconic popular artist. Wait, do you really need to give a history on Frank Sinatra? You know, some people... Uh, Who knows what people listen to nowadays, man? Okay, okay, okay. okay, I'm finding it very informative. Uh, Although he does define the term iconic, it's a safe bet that many of our listeners don't know enough about this artist whose career has influenced everyone from Amy Winehouse uh, to even Drake. So we want to dive into the style and legacy of old blue eyes and examine the impact of Sinatra's cool on popular culture. I think, though, if you if you mention Sinatra's name, though, to the average young Gen Xer or, or you know, millennial, his voice isn't going to come into their mind. It's going to be the image. You know, the image of him maybe standing on stage with a cigarette, you know, uh, sitting on the stool, the cool package. So to your point, I think that maybe his cool sometimes to some generations, maybe it supersedes his actual artistic, you know, contribution, which you could say that's a shame. But it's also I think the cool to me, the cool is is a part of who he is. You know, so I think it's, it's a complete thing. Um Interesting, interesting guy, Frank. He founded Reprise Records, and I didn't know that. He's won one Oscar, for a Best Supporting Actor role. He has, uh, he was married to Mia Farrow for a year. Woody Allen's mm. old lady. <laughs> Emphasis on old. <laughs> the oldest woman he, right, Woody Allen's ever been with. He really rose to fame in the early 1940s, starting out with Tommy Dorsey's big band. And he started uh, making $125 a week with Tommy Dorsey here in Chicago at the Palmer House. And from there, he was uh, signed to Capitol Records, and that's where his music career 
took off. Now, it may be unusual for some of our listeners to think, well, why are we doing an episode on Frank Sinatra? But we want to give some credit to a true OG, Swagger. He could sing, drank. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a legit talent. Oh, there's no doubt about that. My, you know, here's the thing. If Robert De Niro could sing, then he would be the coolest to ever do it. Mm. But since he didn't, um, I can see where people can say, you know, Frank, from that standpoint, was the coolest to ever do it. If he had a black woman in his resume, <laughs> he might be the coolest to ever do it. Frank, Frank never got down with we, the sisters. Not, not that we know publicly. I, and I didn't follow his life like that. I'm not a big Frank dude like that for for very for other reasons. But different you know, time. Um, I just um, Sammy was never like, hey man, you know. But that don't don't get in that kind. Don't even don't even. <laughs> Did don't Sammy ever mess with Well, you know, bring it up. Start, <laughs> don't start that dude. Well, you bring that. it. I mean, you bring up Sammy Davis. I mean, we're talking about a guy who had the original entourage, the original crew, known as the Rat Pack: Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, Peter Lawford, yeah, Peter Lawford, yeah, Jerry Lewis, ja- Jerry Lewis was was, but I thought he was uh, wasn't he like a uh, Capadonna? <laughs> true, 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 true. And on the fringe, <laughs> on the fringe, there was Regis Philbin and Don Nichols. I mean, Don Rickles, yeah, really, yeah, Regis was that whole, yeah, Regis, Regis was an extension of that. I didn't know that. Yeah, Don, I could see, but Frank was in a class of his own though. Yeah, but that's always been my thing, and it, that's why it's hard for me to like give. Frank Sinatra, within everything he's done, that stamp of being the coolest ever, because I always looked at the way he touted Sammy Davis Jr. around as that token. That bothered me. And musically, there was never any soul in what he did. Well, I, I, don't, agree. I don't agree that there was never any soul in what Frank did, but I, I also don't agree that um, Sammy, I don't think Sammy would look at himself like a token. Like, he was so undeniably talented and he, he, in many ways, he had more talent than any of the other members yeah. of uh, the Rat Pack. But, um, but as for Frank, I, I, don't, I don't know if he touted him as a token. I mean, you, you have to look at everything that he did um, in, breaking down, in helping to break down doors for um, Basie, for Quincy. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, he wouldn't play venues that wouldn't let black artists in. Yep. He, he helped cats like Quincy get string arrangement gigs that were previously withheld from black arrangers. And you know, if you look at his second act, right. he at that point he only wanted to work with artists like Quincy, like Basie, etc. Yep, he did. There's an element of the time that you just can't get away from, but um, I feel that he stood up for black artists in a way that not many white artists were doing at that time. Certainly of his level. There's no argument there. I agree with you, and that that's that that's what endeared him to you as a person. You know, I just said what I couldn't get past. You yeah, know, and giving him you. that coolest I, label. I, I didn't. I didn't. Say, I think he's a phenomenal human being. But we're speaking on, as Arthur said, the cool factor, right? Well, is that that, well in that, that that's the yeah, cool factor? Yeah, and enough. to me, out of all the things that he did, and he championed, and I love the things that he did from a human standpoint, especially from a social standpoint, and how connected he was, and how rooted he was in that. Right. But to me, it was never cool for this black dude to be running around with him all the time. Yeah. You know well, what I'm Sammy saying? Was the, well, Sammy was the influence to put the real swing into Ex- his music. Exactly. And, and it seemed a little contrived to a certain point for me. So it was hard. But, and, once again, and, and once again, I think musically, I just never connected to him 
His voice, I thought, was amazing. One of the greatest. His voice was amazing. But musically, and he was doing a lot of jazz, mm-hmm. especially rooted in swing jazz. Right. But musically, a lot of the stuff that he did, and especially his pop music, just never resonated with an amount of soul that made me connect with what I thought yeah, I, was cool. That's a good argument. And definitely, there to be cool, there has to be some soul there. And... I think for the first part of his career, for his first act, the stuff that he was doing with like Nelson Riddle, etc. I like it. I mean, it's still cool for me, but I, I know exactly what you mean. It's a bit more lightweight and um, I don't want to say corny or throwaway, but yeah, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have that level of cool that the work his mm. second act had when he started working with Quincy and Basie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the apex of that, the definitive point of that is the Sinatra at the Sands album. Scored by Quincy Jones, featuring the Count Basie Big Band Orchestra. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just flawless. I mean, Frank is at home in a way that is very rare to see an artist. So comfortable, so chill, but so professional and just nailing every single thing. And it swings so beautifully. Um, his cadence, his, his choice of where to phrase and his phrasing choices, where to put certain words, what emphasis to put where. I often think that the definition of a master at work is to make the supremely complicated look easy, and, and he does that here. I have tried so not to give in. And I said to myself, this affair, it never will go so well. But why should I try to resist when, baby, I know so well that I've got under my skin on that recording in particular he just glides from note to note without any effort at all seemingly without any effort at all it's something to behold do you prefer the Quincy Jones arrangements to the Nelson Riddle arrangements oh definitely definitely I mean I, I like the Nelson Riddle stuff it's it's a bit more lightweight um, but when he started working with Quincy Quincy introduced like a pulse or a kind of push into the arrangements um, is the best way I can describe it that just kind of pushed them a little bit harder and um, it gave it a little bit more attitude and a little bit more swagger thank you I was um, just about to say that right that was pretty important and it, I, yeah if, we, if we're talking coolness definitely that that helped a lot but it's important to register here that it's more than just the music it was him too his ability his talent his vocal resonance his casual demeanour his mastery of everything that he tried to do. That's important. Without that, you know, Quincy has worked with a lot of people, but not everybody is Frank Sinatra. There's some concerts where um, you can hear the Rat Pack off stage trying to mess him up, you know, cracking jokes at his expense. And he, he even adjusts lyrics like he freestyles on the fly. Um, you know, be gentle, don't, you know, go easy on me, etc. There's one, There's one example I can think of in particular where one of the Rat Packers gets hold of a mic backstage and starts singing while he's singing, trying to put him off. And he just snaps back, you've got to beat like a cop, and shuts them up. And it's just beautifully done. He was really great at those um, 50s, 60s kind of um, one-liners that were de rigueur at the time. Let, let me ask you guys as the, because I'm, I guess the opposite of aficionado is neophyte. So I'm a Frank Sinatra neophyte. I, I, most of what I know about Frank Sinatra comes from... Uh, uh, the Gates Elise article, uh, Frank Sinatra has a cold. That was a, the, the, the yeah. landmark Esquire article. Yeah, yes. 
that's pretty much what I know about, mm-hmm. you know. So let me ask you guys, how much of his his enduring, not just fame, but his enduring fame is was this a perfect storm of things that happened? Because traditionally and he's not traditionally, you know, regarded. I don't think he he, he doesn't have that traditional look that you would associate with a Hollywood, you know, a uh, huge star. He's I don't think he was regarded as particularly handsome, but he was a Hollywood star. He was a music star. He was, you know, he he pretty much defined a culture for a very long time because he was how old when he died? He, he didn't die young. He, he died as an old man. Right. Which to me is even harder because usually when people are iconic, they die young. You know, they, the younger they die, the more iconic they are, especially from that era. Um, but how much of his enduring fame is because he occupied so many spaces and kind of came along at a perfect time for what he did? 100% correct. 100% correct. I think correct. it's everything. I think it's everything. Yeah. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Yeah. When he was on Columbia, as is often the case for artists, he was marketed to young girls. But once he moved to Capital, if anything, actually, he was marketed to grown men. Because they want, because they wanted, they, they wanted, wanted everybody to be like him. Yeah. They wanted that lifestyle. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. They exactly. Wanted that lifestyle. I mean, exactly. you know, we say D. Martin. He he was more Bogart, really, like someone in that vein. You know, that dude with the mafia connection, Marilyn, the Kennedys. Then add on his film roles, the Manchurian Candidate, From Here to Eternity. He was something that doesn't happen nowadays, which is a middle-aged movie star embracing middle age. Yeah. I mean, to give our listeners a little context, you know, it, he, Sinatra so, was a lifestyle. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of glazed over arrangers of orchestras of his going from Nelson Riddle, the more corny, you know, to a young upstart Quincy Jones. You know, it's like a top tier rapper switching production and going with, you know, this sound mm-hmm. and having a new resurgence, having a new career, having mm-hmm. a new audience as a result of it. In the Godfather, the the Johnny Fontaine <laughs> character, you know, is mm-hmm. loosely modeled after Frank Sinatra. And I'll say this because I can't speak on that. If you've never read the Godfather book to get because Johnny Fontaine has a whole other story in the book mm-hmm. that did, does bigger. not portray much bigger story. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend reading. I would recommend reading the book, period. Um, but yeah, the Johnny Fontaine's story is much more expansive in the book. He was very, very upset by The Godfather. There's a story. He was Frank was dining at a Hollywood restaurant at that time. I'm not sure whether it was a famous colleague or whether it was his agent, but someone brought Mario Puzzo the writer of The Godfather, over to Frank's table. Because apparently Puzo wanted to tell Sinatra, look, I know you think this character's about you. It's not about you. There's nothing, there's the only similarities that you're a singer, blah, blah, blah. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. And reportedly Sinatra let him have it in front of the whole restaurant Mm -hmm. and was so ferocious that he reduced Puzo to tears. And he not only let Puzo have it, but he let the person, but the person who brought Puzo to the table, he let him have it too. (laughs) <laughs> I can see both sides of that because if it was about him, that's very bad. But I can also see Puzo's side because like that character in that book is, other than being a singer and a Hollywood star, from what you guys have told me about Sinatra, it's, it's very different. You know, very different from who Sinatra was. He's a punk in that book. He was a huge star. Right. But and there's also you remember Jahan. There's also the dual story of his friend, um, of of uh, Fontaine's friend in that book, who was a better yes. singer than he was. Frank never yes. had that. Yeah, that's something that didn't exist in Frank. Right. And that's why when we were you know, warming up, I was thinking that Jay-Z is not the right example here because there's other cats who can do what Jay-Z can do, even if you want to say he's the best MC. 
But there, there might not have been too many people who could have done what Frank was doing at that time. You know, he never did songbook albums. Ella, Louis, Sarah, they all did songbook albums. They all did, you know, Cole Porter, Gershwin, Mercer. Frank never did that. It was He didn't have to, though. Yeah, right. Frank was the concept. It was like, the only thing that these songs have in common is that they're being sung by Frank Sinatra. So the majority of his catalog are original songs? No, no. Many of them were covers, but a songbook album, what I mean by no, songbook is... he did a is, bunch of covers, but a lot of his songs are original songs that he did, but they're, they're not his songs. They're songs written for him. But Jay, Jay, you're saying he didn't do the traditional songbook songs. Right, but it was very, very common back then to have a songbook album, an album where we take 10, 12 Gershwin songs and one singer, one famous singer, sings these famous songs by this one mm. composer. Sung by this person, so oh, this okay. person's okay. voice. Okay. Same way they did with Stevie with Ray Charles. You know, a lot of those artists had to, to gain a, to get an audience. You know, I know it was understand, for, from a creative standpoint, it's fine, but the artists that you talk about that did that, that was their gateway into something else, into something bigger. Frank was, so he didn't have to do that. Yeah, I'm not saying it was an accomplishment on his part. I'm sure that he was afforded opportunities to do to control the material more than his competitors were, particularly his black competitors, absolutely. But it's still something that separated him from a lot of people at that time. Did, uh, were, was Frank listened to in black, black households? At his yes, peak? to a certain degree. But he was listened to in black households as Frank Sinatra. Not necessarily like, oh, this is like, you know, like the same way we may listen to other white artists and incorporate them into our music. Frank had his own lane. They listened to him as his own lane. Like, f- listen to my so parents a, and my he was aunties. A genre. He was his, he was he was his own genre. That's exactly the best way I could put it. That's the best way I could put it. Because they would listen to Louis. They would listen to uh, uh, um, uh, Duke Ellington. You know, they would listen to Dinah Washington. You know, they would listen to jazz, Grace and all that. And that would be all in one thing. But Frank told this Frank. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't, my, the people and the people I came up around this, they would not incorporate Frank into that same thing. Even if it was with Count Basie's band or Chris, whoever he's doing it with, it still would be Frank. We listen to Hall and Oates. Hall and Oates has their own lane. Black, we listen to Sarah Smile. We listen, you know, we listen, but we don't put that in the black music frame. Like, oh no, this Hall and Oates over here. Mm-hmm. You no, know? There was no question as to their legitimacy, right? Right, none, none whatsoever. No, 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 nobody so questions no legitimacy. Question you just Frank's legitimacy. You're just so right, right. You're in your own lane, and I think that's one of the problems I had coming up with Frank. And going back to what you were saying about accepting him, who he was and his swag and how cool he was and what he symbolized. What Frank in the larger context symbolized was that dude that just had it all and did it all who I wanted to be. And as a white guy was concerned, there were others that I saw that were more connected to who I was and who my people were that we could relate to. But they just didn't do it all like him. Like what he had in film we looked at James Cagney and Edwin G. Robinson as cooler versions of that. Right. Like, if we're going to take right. white boys, those are the cool white boys. You know, and even after, musically, once again, I think he had his own lane musically, but as it went along, it got past that. You started getting into the late 60s and the early 70s. Frank wasn't, eh, he was cool, but our version of cool came in the form of maybe a Mick Jagger. 
you know, now ask cool to us. I'm very interested you said that because, um, and perhaps, perhaps Isaac and Arthur can chime in on this one because I don't think you necessarily need to uh, know a lot about their catalogues. And I, I certainly don't to, to judge this one. But looking at Frank Sinatra on stage, he looked at home. He was chill. He's wearing beautiful suit. He had total command of the stage at home and very, very cool. Could you cool? Could you care? For a lovely cottage that you want to meet Monday, we pick out the furniture. The world will pardon my mush. Cause I have got a crush, my baby, on you. Jagger couldn't, I you know, it's a different opinion, it's cool, but Jagger, I wouldn't ever perceive him as cool for what he was doing. I'll perceive him as cool because by default, he's a globally famous rock star who I know is jetting around with supermodels and having the time of his life. Yeah, that's cool. That's but what I'm saying. Just one mat. But, but I'm saying, just if I didn't know either of them, looking at them fresh, one man on a stage and another man on a stage, one of those dudes is super cool to me and but, one of those but, dudes is super awkward to me. Okay, but here's the deal. In the context of when it was happening, for me, and I can only speak to like the the the, the late sixties sure. and early seventies. Sure. Th- that sitting on stage with a with a on, on a stool, smoking a square, singing like you know. I get it. Catch a tune. It. That wasn't cool because you look at what music and stuff, the whole aesthetic of the sixties and the seventies. Mick Jagger was that aesthetic, and that was cool. Yeah, I can't say that. I get it. I remember reading, um, I think it was in Divided Soul, Marvin talking, Marvin Gaye talking about when he started as a young man, he wanted to emulate Frank and Nat King Cole and the other ones. But he talked about by the time he got to be a star, that aesthetic of sitting on a stage, you know, chilling, you know, uh, drinking, you know, whatever and having a cigarette while you, he said it already, it already passed him by, you know, that already gone. Right. So, I can I can see your point of view from that, but I think to John's point, if it if it existed in a vacuum and there was nothing else to look at, but you know those two comparisons, yeah, the cat who seems more controlled and more and more cool would be Frank, but but cool that would want to be. But the whole thing about everybody wants to be this man. This is the guy we holding up as a white boy cool. I'm like, for me coming up in that era with what defined cool was not that, and maybe I was too yeah. Because his his heyday, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, was the 50s, right? The fifties, sixties, yeah. Do you think that there could be another, another Frank Sinatra transitional, scalable character like this it, it, from a white artist standpoint? Not or, in all. Or does he need? Not does that person? Does that man? Or female, does that genres. person need need the construct of the society? You know, Frank came up in a time where, you know, where nobody worried about. Uh, dying from cancer from smoking there wasn't any surgeon general warning you know where he could openly joke about you know his best friend Dean Martin being an alcoholic you know and everybody laughs about that you know now in a more informed uh, politically correct um, conservative you know and and you know have some real actual facts about the results of things you know can can a person like this still exist yeah they can but their name would be Justin Timberlake no, 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 no. No, I, I think I think your Jay Z comparison throws me off, except in the context that Jay and to an extent Justin Timberlake and some other people have 
at one time or another adapted a Frank or tried to adapt a Frank Sinatra persona or a Rack Pat persona by putting on a tux. You know, Jay was, you know, to my knowledge, maybe I don't know if he was the first, but I can see Jay-Z wearing a tux on an album cover more than any other rapper um, and it not be and not seem odd or whatever. So I see him adapting that persona. But as far as like crossover pill, as big as Jay-Z is, I don't see him anywhere near that scale of that scalability that you're talking about that a Frank Sinatra. Mm. I don't think so. I will I will say one thing. Um <laughs> I can't believe I'm gonna say this, but I was gonna say that Frank Sinatra in his day basically dated Beyonce and was friends with Barack Obama, uh, Marilyn Monroe and John F. Kennedy. And then I realized, well, hang on, Jay- Jay-Z did that too. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Married her. <laughs> but I will say in terms of fame, Jay-Z's the junior partner in his group. I don't think Frank was the junior partner necessarily in his. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. Now maybe for me, if he had dated Marilyn. If, if Frank had dated Marilyn? Yeah. Oh, he, he didn't had, date her? They didn't date, did they? There's nothing on record. I don't know. I mean, he gave her that poodle right mafia yeah but i don't kind of provoking a joke about his ties even though it would irritate him when other people would joke about his ties you know i just never I, I, as much as i respect everything that he's did especially non non-musically and non-acting what he did as far as being involved in social movement and being committed to things that just weren't connected to him what he did as a person as much as i respect that you know and as much as i respect his art and what he did contribute, for some reason, for me, he just never was that that do-do to me that it seemed to be with everybody else. It's kind of like our Beatles. I don't, you know, I'm not saying I don't get Frank Sinatra. I get him. But I coming up, I never got him being that dude. Like that, you know, when when you hear his name, music, all of, you know, you know, angels start singing, you know, behind it. I never. Oh, yeah, I got two. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to listen to Sinatra at the Sands tonight. So I got two questions for you guys. One, which one is the Chicago song? song? Is that the My Kind of, my kind of my Town? My Kind of Town. Yeah. What's, didn't he do a New York mm-hmm. song too? New York, New York, the big one. Okay, so My Kind of Town is on here. New York, New York is not on here. That's interesting. Um, I don't, what's the San Francisco song? Is it called? Yeah, what's, what's, is, that's the title of it. San Francisco, what is it? I Left My Heart. In I San Left Francisco. My Heart in San Francisco. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I think I may have yeah. heard that. Yeah. Now, second question though. I see Shadow of My Smile is on here. What are the odds that I'm going to like his version better than, than Marvin's version? The odds are is that you're mm. going to prefer it to the romantically yours version, but you're not going to prefer it to the vulnerable. No, no, no. Version. I don't count. I don't. Yeah, I don't count that version. I'm talking about the vulnerable version. I don't know. So the, I don't know. I mean, you're not going to prefer it. I don't know. It might not. You might. You might just. I've never really put mm-hmm. them side by side against each other and compared them like that. But I will say, Frank was Lutheresque mm. in. In the way that once he'd done a cover, he owned it. And it was very, very difficult for an artist to come behind that and mm-hmm. and do their version of the it cover. Was, it's, it's, it you know, he kind rap. of basically... I, nah, nah, I do agree with you on that, John. His versions became the definitive versions. And he kind of basically took songs mm. off the market once he'd done them. I'm going to do this then. I'm going sort of like to listen to Sinatra at the, the Sands Lakers. from start to finish. But yeah. then I'm going to go back and listen to... Shadow of your smile back side by side to Marvin's vulnerable version. And also while you're doing it, I suggest for all of us, or you three, because I've done it before, is while you if you're going back listening, go back and find the story that Bones Malone's wrote about his affinity to Frank oh, Sinatra. Yeah. yeah. 
I remember that. And that's, I, remember. I think, though, that's, that's a, a good, good I haven't read, I can't, I may have read that. That was an old vibe. Yeah, old and vibe. I probably, yep. I probably did read it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a good aesthetic point of view because some of Bones' aesthetic, I can see clearly, comes from Frank Sinatra. It is, it, but that's what the whole thing is about. So what's the answer before we go on? What's what's the answer? Collect, collect, for what he, for, for what he stands for collectively, maybe yes, because from a talent standpoint, I don't think anybody had the range that he had and put their foot in their stamp on so many different things. You know, 100-year Jack Daniels, that's a thing. You know, the fact that they basically, the fact that he drank was cool, and now the biggest liquor distributor, well, second biggest in the world, is, you know, co-opting his coolness. Right. To it, you know, if you put all of that, if you put the mob situation ties in that and what that represented, no. Because he spanned everything and his collective is so grand. But if you start picking apart cooler white individuals in certain categories, yes, I think we can find some. Yeah, if you categorize it, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, yeah, acting to me, it would be Marlon. It would be Marlon Brando. Oh, without question. Or, or like I said, De Niro, we can go back and find some that were cooler. So, yeah, but nobody, the, I think to one of you guys' bigger point, though, nobody did what he did. You know what I'm saying? Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. White, or, white or black? I don't think any. Yeah, I don't uh. think anybody's done that to that to that level. Roundtable. Past lives. Who is the one artist you wish you could have seen perform live in their prime, but never did? Okay, now I got a question. Are we alive during this period? I mean, like within our like? Can I be like, yeah, I wanted to see Beethoven perform the Fifth Symphony. <laughs> You could, like, does either. It, did either? Okay. You mind? Go ahead. Yeah, I'll go. I think obviously, you know, my one of mine is gonna be Marvin. I, I never saw Marvin Gaye perform, um, even though he died. Heard, he might not have wanted to. <laughs> he died in '84, mm-hmm. so I was Wait, ten years that? old. I what think when saying? he died, Marvin. Um, but you know, the one thing that they they all they they said about Marvin constantly was that. <laughs> I didn't know you didn't see it. I, I thought you saw all that. <laughs> um, the one thing they said about Marvin Constantly is that he was hard to get on stage, but then once you got him there, it was hard to get him off um, because he, was, had a great, he had a great fear of performing, but then once he got on stage, he would get comfortable and you know get into his thing. Um, the only other one I can think of is I never saw Earth, Wind & Fire perform, and I've heard so many great things. <laughs> That that's something I wish I could have experienced. Oh, goodness, dude. Um, I think my brother saw them perform because he was a big Earth, Wind, Especially and Fire. Especially in their heyday, when they were in the, when, with that. Yeah, but, okay, so what was what was the peak? What was the peak? 70, 74, 75. 76, 77, 78. Okay, now my brother, even he was too young then. church groove so we're gonna ask everybody in the house if you are sitting down we're gonna ask you to stand up again so we can get this feeling throughout the place y'all now i want you to move your bodies and clap your hands come on move your body clap your hands
but that's you know i was i was inf- i was infantile then so i definitely didn't see that but yeah i that's i've heard so many things that that's a that's a a spectacle a show it was amazing. you know what i'm saying that i wish i could have i could have seen that's a good one yeah that's a really good one. especially if if we're talking to so scoop you've seen You've seen Earth, Wind, and Fire oh, yeah. with Maurice. Yeah, I've seen him with Maurice. Wow. I saw him back then. We used to, used to stuff here wow. here called the Anthem Theater. He used to have the festival. We used to go see him. You know, I've seen him a bunch of times. I think I've no, not to say a bunch. I think I've seen him three times during that time, like in the seventies. That's incredible. When Verdi, when Verdi it's, would be floating upside shame. down, and they, they disappear. <laughs> like they totally disappear on stage, <laughs> like be gone, and then come back. Like yo, I mean, they it was yeah, they were they were amazing. But and plus the songs, it's just just to hear those songs and hear the songs and to hear them do them live, and because the Earth Wind and Fire never did their songs the way they were on records, you knew it was them. But they would they would separate their live performances from what was recorded, and it was always special. As you can tell with the live albums that they did, you listen to Devotion and Reasons on record, you listen to Devotions and Reasons, mm. you know, or Serpentine Fire. You listen to those live, and you'd be like, mm. oh my god. So yeah, I've seen them. I saw them like three times. So, what what was your end all answer? Was it Marvin or was it Earth Wind and Fire? Uh, it was both. If I had to choose, Come on, don't it, do a Scoop Jackson. Here. <laughs> right, one A and one B. Yeah, if I had to choose, it'd be Marvin, only okay. because I'm closer to his music. Right. You know, so I, I would, you know, but from a spectacle standpoint, I know that yeah, Earth Wind and Fire. Yeah, um, I would have wanted to see Marvin. I would say not during the what's going on because a lot of those shows I don't think I've heard some of those shows audio and they, they were just okay because um, I mean the catalog by the time he gets done with uh, um, I want you you know you got those three albums which I've said on this show before are arguably the, the best trilogy of all time in my opinion um, then if you had uh, you know hear my dear now you're talking about you know four of the best four albums of all time in a in sequence so I I would say probably before, um, anything, probably after. Anything before sexual healing. Yes. <laughs> and also because you know, health-wise, you know what I'm saying, I don't know what he was like on stage after, you know, and it was like, is he going you know, to show up? What's he going to be like? I don't know. So I would say probably after um, whatever, probably after I Want You. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Who's next? Arturo, you, you went last, I think, last time. Yeah, I'll go next. I would have liked to seen Jimi Hendrix with... Wait. Period, like you never see. You, of course, you never saw him. Right. right. So there it is. Okay. Yeah, that was why. That was actually why I'd asked the question early right. on. So I would have wanted to go to uh, New York City, Fillmore East. What year was this? This would have been New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty-nine. So January thirty-one. So were you? You weren't alive. Nah. Okay. Two years out. So the reason the reason for that particular performance is because Band of Gypsies was the first group that he had performed, you know, as Jimi Hendrix, the star. That was an all black group. So it was Buddy Miles on drums and Billy Cox on bass. And 
the the show the entire show was put together um very quickly because hendrix had to get out of a deal with capital records that predated his warner brothers recording deal and capital was calling in for an album and so he he billy and buddy they effectively just helped him out they never performed that trio didn't perform again mm -hmm. and um i really enjoyed that album even more than the experience albums because hendrix was relaxed and he was it was almost like he was at home with family and the material that he performed wasn't experience material um there was one possibly two buddy miles originals one buddy miles actually sang on it called them changes and um i think that would have just been a really good set to see there's audio of this you've heard this yeah now there's a famous really album that i don't know about oh it's super famous okay want me to go go mine is simple there's no particular show or anything is miles davis i never got a chance to see miles davis live at hmm. any point and at the time that i was really of age to go see miles on my own without like one of my fathers and my uncles taking me to see miles it was during the time when people were hesitant on going to see him because he was always playing with his back to mm -hmm. the stage where he would never show up. You know, um, the pre-Tutu days, you know, so. Mm -hmm. But that's the one artist that I, especially listening to his live performances now over the years and how ranging they are, but when he's, when he's good, it's unlike anything, you, you know, you ever heard before, just mm -hmm. to watch him and see him play. never have experienced that that's just as an artist it don't matter when but you know what i'm saying just i've never seen miles play live and that's the one artist i wish i had a chance to um even mm. i wish i would have forced I, I, I was too young to understand i wish i would have forced like uncle cliff mm. or my father or uncle you know anybody i like force me like look just take me to go see him just so i can be there you know what i'm saying <laughs> but you right, just say I did it, but at that time, his reputation and them spending money on going to see him and the shit he made them endure sometimes, they were on that F mile. I ain't, I ain't, I'm not spending another penny going to see him again, you know, live, because you never know what you're mm -hmm. going to get. And, you know, or like on Cliff said, I'm not paying so many dollars for somebody not to have the respect to look at me. When they're performing, mm -hmm. I refuse to buy into that. Mm -hmm. I, I can hear Uncle Cliff saying that. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I came up in that space, so I never got to see him. So, um, but from you know all the listening to the recordings that he's done, and to hear him in Paris, and you know on, on Blue Note situations, you know, and and at, at, at you know some of the jazz festivals, you mm -hmm. know, and just it's like I can't believe I missed it, but I did. So it's just Marvin. I mean, I'm Marvin. Just just Miles as a whole. Just never seen Miles Davis is. That's it. No other answer. I saw him in 86. See, there you go. Where at? 
Uh, Paramount Theater, Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Yep, I knew it was Oakland. How was the show? Show was show was great. In fact, after the show, we went to the stage door. Okay. And um, but you could have been more than like 15, I was fifteen 16 years yeah, old. Yeah, I was fifteen. That's perfect time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's good. You I just did shit like that. Yeah. yeah, Oakland. Look, I used to go see George Clinton and them at twelve. <laughs> when they when they bought the uh, the funk fe- at the funk fest at Soldier Field when they were landing the mothership, I was like 11, 12 years old. We got there on our own. Like we got to see this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, wow. fifteen. Yeah, you were good to go. You were good to go on your yeah, own he, concert. Miles walked right past me. Did he? Uh huh. Yeah, but then yeah, there's yeah. but then there's also the drug situation he was in that you didn't know what state mm. he was gonna be. Okay. When okay. he performed and he mm. had a bad I think he was in a much better headspace. Probably when you saw him, yeah. He was he was after Cecily after doing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He was probably been, mm-hmm. yeah. Now at the time I'm talking about, <laughs> man, please, you you never knew. So I regret that to put me in. I'm done, like never saw Miles. So Yeah, I saw him on the um tour after Arthur, I think. I was, it was probably like one of the first concerts I'd ever been to. Um, I was super young and my parents, they kind of took me or my parents went and they took me with them. It was at Hammersmith Odeon killing. Like I still remember it and thank God I've got recordings of that era and killing, 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 killing. Yep. Uh, AJ, who's yours, man? What's your pick, Joe? All right, all right, all right. So my pick is John Anthony Francis Pastorius III aka Jacko. Mm. Basis for Weather Report and his own solo material, both in a small group and big band setting. Played the fretless bass. He died very, very young in his 30s. He was murdered, actually. My personal preference would have been to see him around the Word of Mouth tour. That's the tour for his second album, Word of Mouth, which featured the Jacko Pastorius big band. band on the record is just next level it's herbie um wayne shorter don elias toots the elmans just killers at the top of their field and um, legend had it that this album he he moved from columbia to warner brothers and on this album the bass his instrument is far less at the forefront and his arranging skills is is really what the album is about um to me and I think that the Warner executives were not prepared for that and they they'd wanted something similar to his debut album um, and this isn't that but it's just it's wonderful and I, I wish I I wish I could have seen it live thankfully recordings are available commercially available actually of um, of that period but yeah so I guess 1981 around then would have been would have been the year and it, it has my favorite Jack tune on there Three views of a secret. Gorgeous tune. All right. Y'all got your homework. (laughs) This has been the Music Snobs podcast. We thank you for joining us and you can find us online at themusicsnobs.com. We're active on Twitter at 
total music snobs and please subscribe to the show in iTunes. Well, I love to speak.